Little girl mate, little boy bake, little one break and go again. Little boy think, little girl wish, little one try and try again. Little one play, it's how we create the greatest way to stay great is to make and to break and feel inspired to make again. That's Sophia Thacker, a writer, communicator, and performer from London who uses her broad range of talents to bring awareness to issues such as mental health and black history. Her poem is about the mindset of makers. It's an invocation of creation, a call for young people to use their imaginations and embrace the opportunity technology affords them to create social change. Quality education is not just about knowledge. It's also about teaching children how to think for themselves. Problem solving and creativity are essential if young people are to take the knowledge they learn at school and apply it to their lives and careers. I think what I would tell to a young student is they may not like it because every young person wants to grow up, but is think like a child. My name is Luisa Gokel. I manage PSN's uh, social impact partnerships. What we try to do at PSN is to work with some of the best education organizations in the world, like nonprofits like Room to Read, World Reader, or large international organizations like UNESCO, to really ask those tough questions around how to improve education, how to improve literacy levels around the world. Before joining Pearson, Luisa was employee number two at Apps for Good, an edtech charity who produced free courses on app building for teachers to use in the classroom. As their vision states, most children are consumers of technology. We want them to become makers using technology. If I think about my personal experience, I went to a very traditional school. It was all about memorizing stuff, getting grades high enough to be able to get into a public university. I'm originally from Brazil. In Brazil, the public are the best ones. And I think I didn't question anything. I didn't use imagination or creativity, probably until I was 18. <laughs> and now I look back and, and see how damaging the wrong school system system and adult curriculum can be to a child. Luisa works in social impact, but she started her career in journalism, which was where she fell in love with storytelling. My original plan actually was to start as a journalist, perhaps write a couple of books, maybe go into screenwriting. But and then I started writing about women's rights, indigenous rights, and realized how powerful good storytelling is. Luisa believes her passion for asking questions has been the key to her career success, from journalism to her current work trying to solve education problems worldwide. You need to literally think like a child. You need to stop and notice things. You need to ask questions. You need to keep curious, keep this childlike thinking that will actually can free you and give you a phenomenal sense of imagination that I believe is one of the most relevant and important skills personally and professionally to, to thrive in the 21st century. In this episode, we examine the role of imagination and the arts in science and education and talk to those who are bridging the divide. This is Nevertheless, a podcast about learning in the modern age. Each episode, we shine a light on an issue impacting education and speak to the women creating transformative change. Supported by Pearson and hosted by me, Lee Alexander. I used to think of science as being very, very different from arts until I spent any time talking to artists. And the similarities are stunning and you don't really see them until you allow yourself to 
not be quite so vain about what you do. So whenever I talk to an artist, and I think this is true for any scientist I've ever known, when you talk to artists, we're always surprised at how much background work artists do. They don't just like, get out of bed and paint a picture. There's a process, there's research, there's investigation. All the stuff that looks like exactly like what scientists do. And similarly, artists can be very surprised by how creative science can be, because you do have to come up with new solutions and suggestions, try a new way of testing something. One of my favourite things is designing a study. That is the creative end of the scientific process. Sophie Scott is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at UCL. In 2017, she presented the prestigious Royal Institution BBC Christmas Lectures, a three-day live presentation of science to an audience of children. The Christmas Lectures are a British science institution televised by the BBC since 1936. The lectures themselves were founded almost 200 years ago by one of the most influential scientists in history, Michael Faraday, who wanted a way to communicate science to children who couldn't afford an education. The key to attracting a general audience to science lectures was to make them entertaining and imaginative. Faraday used color and humor in his lectures, saying, a flame should be lighted at the commencement and kept alive with unremitting splendor to the end. So I suppose what I'm saying is you can see both art and science as being ways of, different ways, but very highly related ways of using imagination to try and understand the world. They're both just ways of trying to find things out and they have superficial differences, but they're all being done by humans. And I think that kind of imagination and interest and seeking to understand things is at the heart of a lot of what we do. So we did a summer science exhibition in 2012 just about laughter and we had stand-up comedians performing in this tiny little stage in the Royal Society just to make the audience laugh and then we're measuring what happens in people's bodies when they laugh and it was a riot and it, it worked really well, it was very popular, the comedians loved doing it, people loved working on it, we got a lot of good feedback from the kids so I was like, you know, we can do more with this. Sophie studies laughter. Hi, thank you very much. So, uh, my name's Sophie Scott, and I'm a I'm a cognitive neuroscientist from University College London. And, uh, and uh, it's very hard to say this without sounding like you I don't know the undead, but I like brains, and I work with brains. Born in Blackburn, she was the first in her family to follow an academic career path, completing a PhD in cognitive science, and then embarking on a research career at Cambridge. She's now based at UCL. Her research is about communication and emotion, and she's particularly interested in the neuroscience of laughter. Her TED Talk, Why We Laugh, has over three and a half million views. Everyone laughs, but Sophie is the expert in why. I like brains. Researching laughter led her down an unusual path for a scientist. She began to do stand-up comedy herself and now incorporates comedy lessons into her science lecturing. I just loved it, and it was something I, I did it the first time and thought, I, I want to get good at that, I want to learn how to do this. So it is a very different thing from being trying to be, you know, make your friends laugh. It is an entirely different strategy, and it's a fascinating one, and it's something I found very interesting as a process to try and learn about. But I think the even more important side of it, and this is actually why I make my students do it, is that it's a fantastic training in being comfortable in your skin, on a stage with using humour. You do feel like I did that, do you know what, I could do anything. You know, it's like running a half marathon, you think I've, nothing can touch me, you know. So it's, it's definitely, that was a very useful skill. And if that hadn't been in place, I doubt that I would have ever done a TED Talk. I think I probably, nothing about my talks would have made them in any way remarkable or interesting to TED. 
Using stand-up comedy to enhance science and education is an unusual approach at a time when many have historically seen science and the arts as separate. Science is supposed to be analytical, serious, and rational, while the arts are perceived as playful, metaphorical, and abstract. But both require the same thing. Both take imagination. Throughout history, even before perhaps the most famous scientist and artist of all, Leonardo da Vinci, the arts have been inspiring science and vice versa. So how do we encourage children, educators, and even employers to foster the arts in a science context? If both disciplines benefit from imagination, how do we stimulate imagination for its own sake? One organization trying to answer these questions is Science Gallery, who have exhibition and experimentation venues across the world. Their newest space is in London and incorporates art galleries, a theater, and a cafe. It's where science meets art. We spoke to Jen Wong, head of programming for Science Gallery. A science graduate, Jen completed a master's degree in the history and philosophy of science before moving into a SciComs career. She co-founded Guerrilla Science, which takes science into art spaces like music festivals. And now Jen oversees the exhibitions at Science Gallery London. So the idea is that the program at Science Gallery London is really to provide 15 to 25 year olds with the opportunity to find out more about themes that affect us all. So we're looking at addiction and recovery as our first exhibition. Then we're looking at spare parts, so transplantation, regeneration and prosthetics. And then we're looking at dark matter. Science Gallery's ethos is to include minority or marginalized people in their exhibitions. For the addiction and recovery theme, they worked closely with young people from the Oak Hill Secure Training Center, many of whose lives have been impacted by drug addiction. So we've worked with Oak Hill Secure Training Center, performance artists, a visual artist called Dryden Goodwin, and a policymaker based at King's College London called Kim Wolfe, to really try and look at people from Oak Hill's kind of experience of drugs and what they mean to them. So it's kind of, it's not your standard, this is what a drug is, <laughs> just say no kids. It's kind of looking at addiction and recovery much more holistically from the perspectives of the arts and sciences to try and, yeah, unpick what this phenomenon that affects us all really means for us today. So even though these themes sound fairly esoteric, <laughs> the way in which we approach them by bringing artists and scientists together with young people to interrogate what these themes mean for their lives is kind of the ambition of the programme. So that will happen through a cycle of three-month exhibitions and an associated event programme where people will be able to encounter some of the projects that have been incubating for the last two years in, in the case of Hooked, which is the first season. And to ask questions, really. So people coming into the gallery will come face-to-face -face with gallery mediators. They might come face-to-face -to -face with addiction researchers and artists who are on gallery. And then they'll also come across various artworks that explore really kind of pertinent questions for us today. So, for example, one section of the exhibition looks at digital addiction or life online and how... Today, in the 21st century, we're kind of literally this idea of kind of immediate reward is facilitated at the speed of light through internet cables. What Jen is describing is the impact of technology on our culture. Our social media interactions are influenced by the speed at which our devices can transmit and receive information. Our daily transport, our jobs, even the health of our bodies and the planet are now inseparable from advancing technology. 
This human-wide connection to science and how we live with it is what inspires one art form in particular, science fiction. In a recent podcast for Wired, the best-selling author Yuval Noah Harari describes science fiction as the most important artistic genre. It shapes the understanding of the public on things like artificial intelligence and biotechnology, which are likely to change our lives and society more than anything else in the coming decades, end quote. We spoke to a science fiction writer who has also bridged the divide between a STEM career and the arts. Author and psychologist Dr. Kate Mascarenas released her best-selling novel, The Psychology of Time Travel, in mid-2018. The book is a sci-fi murder mystery in which four women scientists invent time travel. Kate's academic background in psychology helped to inform her world-building and gives her a different kind of insight into the role of imagination in both science and literature. In some ways, it's a kind of heightened awareness because having sort of come up through, you know, being an inspiring writer and, and now doing it professionally, part of it is learning to not disregard thoughts that you might just think of as, you know, dismissible. So the sort of cliche of writers holding events and turning to Q&A and people say, oh, where do you get your ideas from? Well, actually, everybody has ideas, but they don't necessarily pay them more than fleeting attention. So I think part of imaginative work is actually it's being open to possibilities and also just sort of giving your own sort of just incidental thoughts a little bit more respect, I guess. <laughs> and, you know, I think once you, once you get into that as a habit, it, it becomes much more second nature. Kate sees science fiction as a natural crossover point for science and the arts. There's often a default assumption that you start from character. I think with science fiction, you're starting very often from a, a what-if question. And, I, you know, I think science fiction is a, is a nice place for science and art to meet um, in that respect, that, you, you know, you can be exploring those what-if questions in a narrative artistic way. In creating a world that answers the question, what if, in this case, what if four women scientists invented time travel, Kate also had to address real-world questions about the realities of what it's like to be a woman in science, something she herself has experienced. There were kind of several stages to it, really. I started off, I wanted to write a story that was exclusively focused on women because my own experience had been that readers will, without even really meaning to, they'll quite often um, prioritise the actions of the male characters or they'll, they'll think that that's, that's what's driving the story. And it, it sometimes leads them down some very strange interpretive paths. So I started from the point of view that I wanted to write a story about women. And then, you know, it made sense to make them scientists within this time travel story. But there were various ways in which that made sense within the world of the story and also in terms of how I could justify it as uh, something that I was creating. So my out-of-world explanation for it was this is this is an entirely created world there is no reason why I can't make it all female you know if, if we can imagine that time travel exists then we can imagine an all-female workforce that shouldn't be a huge leap there are lots of women who've written science fiction and there are lots of fictional women time travelers but I think our default assumption when we come to something as readers is that the scientists are going to be male and it was nice to be able to sort of push back against that and, and you know say well why can't they be women in this case science fiction has inspired real world change 
Martin Cooper, Director of Research and Innovation at Motorola in the 1970s, directly credits the Star Trek tricorder as inspiration for the design of the mobile flip phone. Writers H.G. Wells and Jules Verne are credited as the inspiration for world-changing inventions, including liquid-fueled rockets, the submarine, and the helicopter. Indeed, Verne is often quoted as saying, anything that one man can imagine, another man can make real. Imagination is the key to both fiction and innovation. But the Jules Verne quote also illustrates the problem that Kate Mascarenas addresses in her novel. Science fiction, like real-world science, has historically been the domain of men. I'd been on the train into work, and I was reading an article about how Elon Musk was taking neural lace, which was in the Ian M. Banks culture novels, and trying to turn it into reality. And I suddenly thought, okay, well, um, what are the equivalents for women? If men have these big heroic things that they're inspired to achieve because of stories, are there um, equivalents for women? And it sort of started there. And then we, at the beginning of this year, started talking to um, Nesta about the event today, and we decided to do a um, book of... The stories. That voice is Rachel Coldicutt. She's the CEO of Dot Everyone, a think tank founded by innovator Martha Lane Fox that explores and seeks to influence how technology changes society. We spoke to Rachel at FutureFest, a weekend of talks organized by innovation charity Nesta. The book of stories she refers to is called Women Invent the Future. It's an anthology of eight science fiction stories, all written by women. But while the brains behind the book are all women, the target market is not. Rachel explains. One of the things that we noticed in the last year is that there's a lot of woke dads. So there's lots of men in tech who were not really interested in gender balance until I think me too started happening. And they started to think, oh, actually, I have a daughter. And I was like slightly troubled because obviously they'd probably had a mother, they may have had a partner, they may have had a sister or friends previously. However, the daughters are the change agents, so great for daughters. And what we started to realise is, is that, so thinking about the culture that those men are in, there are loads of people who are looking for things to do and they don't know the things. So one of the things we were thinking is if we send this book to maybe a hundred male influencers and we ask them to read those stories and think about the things that they can do differently, whether that's commissioning differently, making different choices about their business or a product they're making, and just to see if these different kind of influences and stories have a change. The book is free to download from the Dot Everyone website. Anyone can read it, but what Rachel recognizes is that the majority of decision makers in innovation and technology are still men. If women are to shape the future, then the male CEOs, entrepreneurs, and decision makers need to start taking inspiration from the stories that women tell. I've been working in tech for over 20 years and a lot of the time I've not really been able to look ahead and know confidently the context that I'd be working in in a year or five years. Like, I think 
when you're working in an innovation context, there's an extent to which you are making it up, you know. And actually, the inputs that everybody has into that kind of bravery and imagination, lots of those things come out of, of stories. And so there's, there's a really clear link between... So if you think in... Uh, Star Trek, the communicator turned into the Motorola the flip, right? Jules Verne uh, start, started to talk about the submarines um, I think in about um, 1880 and the um, power of his imagining it helped others to make it, it, it possible and so there's, there's a really strong link there and that not only is there a link in terms of things that people um, make. There's a, another link in terms of culture. So if I think in all the tech companies or the dev teams that I've worked in, the um, moments that people come together to, to talk about things are about the shared culture. Not Everyone's founder, Martha Lane Fox, co-founded LastMinute.com and is on the board of Twitter. She is a champion of technology, but she's also an arts graduate, having studied ancient and modern history for her degree. Steve Jobs, the late founder of Apple, had a passion for the art of calligraphy that he credits with inspiring the design of the Mac. The same story comes up again and again. A marriage of arts and science is good for business. A 2011 study by Michigan State University showed that the more arts and crafts someone studied, the more innovations and inventions they produced in their STEM career. The study states, 81% of the respondents recommended arts and crafts education as a useful or even essential background for a scientific or engineering innovator. And the earlier an arts education is given, the better the outcomes. Otherwise, we risk children's education and career tracks becoming too narrow, forcing a between arts or science. This is something actor and neuroscience Mayim Bialik understands well. Mayim entered the spotlight in the 80s as a child actor, starring alongside Bette Midler in the 1988 movie Beaches, and then playing the character Blossom on the popular sitcom of the same name throughout the 90s. She now plays neuroscience Amy Farrah Fawcett on the show The Big Bang Theory, but Mayim brings more than acting to the role. In 2007, she earned her PhD in neuroscience from UCLA. Mayim is an ambassador for Pearson's Dare to Learn, Dare to Change campaign, which aims to inspire adults to learn new skills and fulfill long-held ambitions. I was a child actor, and by the time Blossom ended, I was already two years out of high school. I had always been interested in science, and it wasn't something that that I really had had the space or the time or really the confidence to pursue. And when I did make the decision to to go to UCLA, it was for the exact reason that the Dare to Change, Dare to Learn campaign reached out to me. And why I'm so happy to be working with Pearson is because the notion for me was, you know, there's this thing that I'm passionate about that I've always wanted to do, and I've never thought that I could pursue it. And becoming a scientist and living my life as a scientist, no matter what profession I have, was incredibly gratifying, and it really changed my worldview. It changed how I parent. And it's not just because of what I studied. It's because I, I chose to study something that I previously had thought I didn't have, you know, the space for, you know, or the ability to. Like the other women we've heard from in this episode, Mayim uses the arts to communicate science. 
And like Michael Faraday, who founded the Christmas Lectures in 1825, she believes that teaching is best when it's entertaining and passionate. Being a teacher is a kind of performance, really, no matter what you're teaching. The notion of needing to present information in a way that's interesting and engaging, there's a, absolutely a theatrical kind of aspect to that, and that's going to vary. You know, we've all had teachers that are really good and seem like they'd be really good actors, and some who clearly don't have that skill set. So um, for me, as a scientist, I sort of feel like everything gets combined now. And I guess I feel the same way, you know, as an actor. There are parts of my creative side that make their way into the science that I do and think about, and then there are ways that my scientific brain really, you know, kind of informs my, um, you know, my acting world. So if science can inform the arts and vice versa, then how do we encourage young people to integrate both into their education, to see the similarities between disciplines rather than the differences? We return to Jen Wong at Science Gallery London. I think when you're 15 and you're at this, like, stage in your life where like you feel like you have to make all these decisions imminently and that they're going to shape the rest of your life. That's a really interesting place to be. And I think that the decisions that you might make as a 15 year old are not actually irreversible. So that, you know, hopefully you'll live a long and productive and fruitful life till you're like 80 plus, maybe 90 actually at this stage, maybe even 100, who knows? But that's a lot of time to travel through and also continue to make decisions about where you see yourself going. And I think a lot of young people think, oh, no, but this is, like, (laughs) the end. Like, if I don't make the right decision now, that means I'm boxing myself into a life that I don't want for myself later on. And actually, that's not really the case, is it? Like, you're going to be alive for a really long time, you know, the way the future of work is going means that you're not going to have a job for life. You may not even have a career for life. A lot of people change direction, and maybe that's what makes life interesting. Little girl make, little boy bake, little one break, and go again, little boy think, little girl wish, little one try, and try again, little one play, it's how we create, the greatest way to stay great is to make and to break and feel inspired to make again. Paint this picture in your brain. In fact, close your eyes as I say it. The year is 1960-something or whatever age you were outside playing. It's time to tackle the bike. Mama said it's time to ride. But this time you need to put the training rules aside. You look around, there's no one there that you can run to. Just mum holding the bike saying, come through, so you talk to your body, tell it to trust you. This is simply something that you must do. You climb on top, move off and fall off. You climb on top, move off and fall off. You climb on top, move off and fall off. It happens five more times, but still you don't stop. You try straightening your back this time. You try leaning forward this time. You try doing it with your eyes closed. That was a bad idea. You try riding where the wind goes. The tumble is that much more dear. You try doing it with mum, blame her, call dad. Eventually, you find a method that fits your preferred way to sit to ensure that you move and you've fallen enough times to know how to smooth out a tumble that you've learnt to be inevitable. Open your eyes. This is us. Or at least how we should be. As fearless as our youth was. We learnt the most important things during our childhood and teens. 
to crawl before we walk and then to walk and to talk, how to trust support, how to communicate before we learn effective English, how to engage in the day from start to finish with no job, no pay, no meetings or dates. Yet we maintain the mindset that makes and tests and tries again. How many pillows should I move to the floor to feel safe when I jump from here? Because last time I hurt myself and mum made it clear that if I do that again, I'm in trouble. But I'd be damned if I was governed by fear at such a young age when I've still got the whole world to test out. Ironically, we all still have the world to test out. Technology is pushing out new lifestyles by the minute. Globalization means that we are able to connect with everyone in this, which means that we are communicating as we never have before. Your great idea in India has recently knocked on my door via a blog post that I can no longer ignore because there is this world to learn and how you navigated this new space. How you encouraged innovation from your staff by encouraging vacations and late starts. How you combated your problem of employee inertia by embracing a culture of liquid talent. How you introduced mindfulness on Tuesdays and suddenly got mass productivity on Fridays. The brand voice you developed online. The social issues that are now intertwined with your once traditional business model now advocates equality and gender rights. Change with the times, free your mind, drop your pride. Once upon a time, you were right and it's fine. Embrace the transition, feel out the line. If you own a business, manage or work within the rhyme, to constantly improve your creation is the very gift of design. So treat making and remaking as that Christmas sweater that you secretly want to wear all of the time. Nevertheless is a Story Things production. Series producer is Renee Richardson. Executive producers are Nathan Martin and Anjali Ramachandran. This episode was produced and written by Tracy King. Music and sound design by Jason Oberholzer and Michael Simonelli, supported by Pearson and presented by me. The Alexander. Subscribe free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This week's unsung hero is Kimberly Bryant, founder of Black Girls Code, democratizing program education for women of color. <laughs>